I know you uh, appreciate this band as much as I do and their worship leadership. It's just been great this week. Thank you all so much. Well, good to see you. Uh, man, was it cold today. I looked out the, out the window here a little while ago this afternoon and saw some deer going through the woods, and I could have sworn one of them had on a toboggan and an overcoat. Uh, they were freezing out there. And if the deer are cold, I know we're cold. Man. Well, that'll, that'll help us remember that we were together this weekend in warm fellowship. Well, we've been studying Luke chapter 10. Please take your Bibles and turn back to that great chapter. You remember two nights ago, we talked about the fact that the Christian mission is every Christian mission. The Christian mission is every Christian's mission. So we are called by him when we're converted to go into ministry. It's for every Christian. We do it together, two by two or otherwise, together, just like Jesus traveled with a team. Paul always, when he had the opportunity, traveled with the team. He was only alone under duress, when in Athens and Corinth, a few other places. But he always designed to, to work as a team. And they went everywhere, wherever the Lord would lead them. So it's for everybody together, everywhere. Then we saw last night that this ministry is costly. It's uh, dangerous. It uh, demands that we leave our home, the place that we feel comfortable. It demands that we go to places where otherwise we might not have gone, and maybe our mama wouldn't have let us go there either, but we go because he says, go and sends us out. Furthermore, we saw that we always go at the risk of our very lives. And the reason, of course, is because we were purchased with his life, and so everything that we do uh, is at the risk of our life because that's the only way that is appropriate to follow him. He gave his life for you. You take up your cross and follow him. And then we saw Thirdly, as, as to the dangers or costs of the ministry, that it costs us financially too, so that we just simply cast ourselves at the mercy of God and we receive his provisions with thanksgiving. We trust that he'll provide for us as we go in his name. So wherever he goes, he gives the provisions for us to go. And we saw that that's no excuse to be unwise with our finances or to be reckless. Uh, we should be planners and we should be careful. Proverbs has a lot to say about that. So did Jesus, by the way. But we see that we're not to worry about our provisions. We're to trust him. And that should never keep us from being ministers for him. Any fears about financial or physical sort of support from him. So that's what we studied last night. Now we come to verse 9. And we're going to read through verse 16. And tonight we want to see what the work of the ministry is. Because when Jesus sends them out, he does tell them precisely what to do. And he also tells them how important their ministry is. So let's, let's look at this together. Luke chapter 10, verse 9. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And we pray that as we read it and contemplate it, that you'll enable us to put it into practice in our very hearts. We submit our lives and ministries to you tonight and ask that by your word you would continue to shape us, keep us in repentance and faith all of our lives, Lord, so that we're constantly being changed in the very likeness 
of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Speak, O Lord, for your servants listen. Amen. Luke 10, 9. Hear the word of God. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Some of you will recognize the name Dr. Peter Drucker. He was the 20th century's management guru. He wrote many, many volumes on management technique and the philosophy of management. He was very philosophical himself and a very fine historian. Uh, he was sort of an Episcopalian Christian. I'm not sure if he would, I don't think he'd call himself an evangelical, but he, he did go to sort of a liberal Protestant church, as I remember. Uh, he was from Central Europe back in the first part of the 20th century. He died around 90 years of age. So when I heard him in a small group of about 10 of us for a whole afternoon, he sat on a stool as an old man and just spoke in stream of consciousness. And it was a memorable afternoon. I remember many things he said. But one of the things he said to us was, there are two questions that every institution and every person needs to be able to answer clearly. Here are the questions. Number one, what's business? And number two, how's business? Pretty simple for a management guru. I guess that's what gurus do. They boil the complex down to the simple. It seems to me that you and I need to know what's our business. And we need to be able to assess how's our business going. What's the mission? How's it going? Jesus decidedly in this passage shows his disciples what the mission is. We're going to see that in verse 9. And then in verses 10 through 16, he shows them the weight or the consequences of their mission and of their ministry. So the first, in the first instance, we get the essence of this ministry. What is it that we're to be doing? We need missional, missional clarity. What is it? He shows us, and then he shows us how important it is, how weighty it is, how consequential it is. We need to know that today. Sometimes we go about our, our work, and we have some, sort of a humdrum attitude about it. It's just another day, and we've forgotten the weight or the consequence that rests upon what we're doing every day of the week. 
as those who are ministering in the name of Jesus. Well, let's look at verse 9, and he shows us this, that our ministry is the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's what our ministry is. It's the ministry of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 9, I want you to go into that home, heal the sick in it, and I want you to speak to them. Now, why do I say this is the ministry of Jesus? Keep your finger in Luke 10. Go back with me to Matthew 4. And here, uh, Matthew has a particular structure in the first part of this gospel that's very interesting. If you'll look at Matthew 4.23, he gives us a summary of Jesus' ministry. And he gives it again in chapter 9 that we'll look at in just a moment. But look at 4.23 in Matthew. And he, that is Jesus, went throughout all Galilee doing what? Number one, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So he went teaching, preaching, healing. Now look at chapter 9, verse 35 of Matthew. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages doing what? Teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction. It's a repeat of the verse he gave in chapter 4. Why did he give the verse again? The reason is they're bookends, literary bookends. They show us the ministry of Jesus, and then in chapters 5 through 9, he displays the ministry of Jesus. Matthew does. Chapters 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. There he is teaching and preaching. Chapters 8 and 9 show us multiple merciful miracles performed by the Lord Jesus Christ, healing people. So Matthew says, I'm going to show you what Jesus' ministry is. He mentions it at the beginning, he mentions it at the end, in the middle, he shows us what it is. Preaching, or rather teaching, preaching, and healing. Now here's Jesus sending out his disciples. We saw that the 70 or the 72 is a number that's used to summarize the entire church. He's sending us all out, two by two, to do what? To heal and to speak. You could call it preaching or teaching. That's our ministry. Now, this is important because uh, those of you who are in Presbyterian circles, there are a lot of discussions these days about the role that mercy ministry or social justice, which has become a bad word in some people's minds, how it connects to the core of the gospel. Is it part of the gospel or is it an agenda uh, aside from the gospel or is it an addendum to the gospel? What is it exactly? How do we think about our commitment to the poor and to the lonely and marginalized? How do we think about that with relation to the preaching of the gospel? What you'll see in Jesus' ministry over and over again and clearly in these passages we've just looked at is he always keeps them together. It's not either or, it's both and. The ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is a ministry that cares about every physical affliction that comes upon human beings. You say, why? Because he loves us. <laughs> so anything that afflicts you, afflicts him. He came and took on flesh. He's experienced everything that we've experienced, yet without sin. And he did that so that he would know every affliction that we have, and he cares about every single one of them. So, 
They're to go into these villages, into the homes, and you notice the first thing he tells them, be aware of the needs in that home. Is there a sickness there? Heal it. <gasps> Me? Yeah, you. I'm giving you power to heal it, to pray for those people, and actually to lead them to healing, to, to well, uh, health. So we in our ministry with teenagers, we care about their soccer games. We care about their broken relationship with their girlfriend. <laughs> we care about their dysfunctional parents. We care about their physical problems and their, their medical issues. We care about their academic work. We care about their broken hearts. We care about everything about them. Everything. Because Jesus commands us to. Because he does. And we're in his ministry. So when you're dealing with a person in ministry, you're dealing with them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're taking on his comprehensive care of them. So this is reflected in a number of ways, even as we deal in the unbelieving world, as individuals and as a church. Some years ago, um, at Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis, we really took to heart the issue of poor education for literally tens of thousands of our citizens in Memphis. Very poor education. So I went to see the superintendent of public schools in Memphis in her office uh, and told her of our concern. And I said to her, um, I said, you know, I, I, we, we, we don't want to be presumptuous. And, and most of our parents, frankly, patronize private schools in Memphis, in our church. And I wouldn't want to be an embarrassment to the public school system in any way by our getting involved and then people say, who are these private school parents who think they're better than we are and so on. She interrupted me. I said, Reverend Wilson, I said, yes, ma'am. She said, do your people love children? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, you'll do fine. She said, we have a new program where we're asking entities to adopt one of our schools that, that are underperforming. And if you'll see my deputy, we have several options. And if you choose one of those, that would be a wonderful thing for you all to do. So I, I saluted and said, yes, ma'am, and spoke to our deputy. And there was a school just, oh, about four or five miles north of us, just, just down the road, that was very poor performing and a very poor school. 90% of the students were on the federal lunch program, so that tells you how poor it was. 40% Caucasian, 40% African-American, 20% other, mostly Hispanic. And of course the Hispanic kids, a lot of them really didn't know English very well. So it was a low performing school. So we went to the principal and asked how we could help and he said, well, there's glass all over the playground. We can't get our maintenance team in the city to clean it up, would you clean it up? So we cleaned it up and said, what's next? He said, well, you can put some grass in the front yard. Kids and parents just trample over it and it's just a dirt you know, pile. So we put little ropes up and we uh, seeded and fertilized the lawn and some months later, you had some green grass in the front lawn. And then he, uh, he, we said, what else can we do? He said, well, um, we've got really low attendance for the PTA meetings. Anything you could do to help with that? So he said, well, we, we can cook some barbecue. And he said, oh, that's a great idea. So our guys got out there with the grills. And so when the kids were getting out at 2.30 or 3 o'clock, the 
smoke was wafting over the front lawn. Everybody said, what's that? Oh, it's for the meeting tonight. It's free. You get a free barbecue meal. Oh, really? So they had the best attendance they'd ever had in the history of the school that night. And then we said, well, what else can we do? He said, well, you notice our rooms are kind of dingy and there's a low budget in the city school system. We can't get the rooms painted. And so uh, our team went in and painted the rooms, including the teacher's lounge, which was the worst thing you've ever seen in your life. They not only painted it, but got new furniture in there, got a water fountain that they didn't have and a little machine where they could, you know, get some uh, food and a microwave. The teachers came in in August and they just started crying. They couldn't believe how their school had been transformed. And then we said to the teacher, what else can we do? And he said, well, you know, a lot of our kids, they, they, uh, they can't read. If you had some people that could just sit down with them in reading circles and just read with them. So every one of our Sunday schools, we had 20 adult Sunday schools and we had every one of those Sunday schools adopted a classroom if they were willing. It's a public school, so you're not going to force it. Every one of them wanted a Sunday school to adopt them, so we promised to pray for their prayer list, and then we sent teachers or sent our lay people in to sit down with kids and read with them. Over the next couple of years, an interesting phenomenon took place. In Tennessee, we have these TCAP scores. It's you know an annual measurement of kids' progress, and the Burklair School TCAP scores started to do this. And whenever you're in an under-resourced school and your scores do this, everybody knows one of two things has happened. You're either cheating, like some people do, some schools do, they cheat, or something's happening over there. So the principal started to get phone calls. What is happening with your TCAP scores? And here was his answer. He said, I'm not real sure, but I, I think it has something to do with Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Well, some of our folks, even in the church, didn't understand why we, a church, would be involved in a secular organization, the public schools, where we can't evangelize, can't preach. Well, nothing stopped us from starting a soccer league where a lot of those kids join. Nothing stopped us from having buying a house across the street and starting a Bible club after school. Nothing stopped us from having a community development corporation where we had medical care for the parents, mostly Hispanic, who had no medical insurance. Nothing kept us from starting English language as a second language uh, for all the Hispanic families. Nothing kept us from planting a Hispanic church. You don't do everything always at the same time, but it's integrated. The ministry of Christ is integrated. And so he says, go in there and heal. You say, I'm not a doctor. Do you know how to pray? <laughs> go in there and bless. I'm not an educator. Do you know how to, how to read a book with a little kid? Go in and heal. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever God's people go, we go to relieve human affliction of every sort. That's what Jesus is doing for us. That's what he did for us when he was on the planet. Now, Look what else he says. He says, I want you to go in there and heal. So you can see that that's certainly on our agenda. Now the reason, let me take a, a little side road here. A reason that folks like most of us who come from upper middle or middle class churches, we don't understand this, 
about the gospel is because when you get into wealthier uh, cultures, uh, the things that pertain, some of the things that pertain to the gospel get uh, contracted out. For example, you've got hospitals and you've got doctors. So when you're sick, you don't tell the pastor, you go to the doctor because you've got wealth and you've got doctors. You've got a whole system of doctors. You've got hospitals you can go to. When you need school and you go to your really fine school and every one of you have kids, you're carefully choosing your neighborhood so that it has a good school in it and you've got the power to move wherever you want to go. So you don't go to the pastor with your educational problems. You go to your teachers and your principal and the school that you think is, is competent. And on and on it goes. We've got these guilds, professional guilds, in our culture that do things that actually are pertaining to the gospel. You go into an under-resourced community, they don't have medical care. If I've got a cyst on my arm, I go to the pastor and he prays for it and helps me find out what I'm going to do about it. If I've got an educational problem, I go to the pastor in a poor community. It's really helpful if you'll deal with the poor because they'll put the gospel back together for you. And, and you'll see that it, it is integrated. It's everything. That we love each other. And you need to be broke sometimes to understand how the gospel really works. When you've got so much money, sometimes you don't understand the fullness of the gospel. But now notice what Jesus does. He says, I want you to heal them, and then I want you to say something to them. I want you to speak. It, the Christian mission is not just a ministry of mercy. I'm all for mercy. I'm all for organizations that want to aid and abet the poor and the marginalized. But it's not Christian if there's no distinct message that's connected integrally to the mercy ministry. It would have not have been a Christian minister, ministry for us to go sit in the schools and help with education if we have no intention to offer the gospel under any venue. That would have not have been a Christian ministry. Because Jesus says, I want you to heal and I want you to speak. I want you to help and I want you to proclaim and teach. And they're both there. And I think it would be pretty easy to see that because the healing deals with temporal affliction and the speaking deals with an eternal affliction, that the speaking ministry is the cutting edge of everything that we're doing. If we love people, we want them to be healthy and happy right now but we especially want them to be healthy and happy for eternity. So as John Piper put it in Lausanne 3, I think we can say it like this. We Christians are concerned about every form of human affliction, especially eternal affliction. So the ministry of the word and the ministry of mercy go together. You cannot separate them. But one has dominance. It's the cutting edge. Now, Richard John Newhouse, in his book, Freedom from Ministry, I believe that's where he says it, put it this way. He said, the proclamation of the gospel, the preaching of the word, is the prow of the ship. It's the bow. It's the head of the ship. In the cargo holds is all the goods. So the ship is one ship. It's got the preaching and teaching, and it's got the mercy ministry. But the prow of the ship is the gospel itself. Now, what is this gospel that he wants them to tell? Well, look what he says here. 
tell them about the kingdom. Now, if I were to ask us by a voice vote what the gospel is, we'd probably say, you know, it's believing in Jesus Christ who died on Calvary's cross for us and was raised again. Great answer. But let me build a larger context for you. The gospel actually has a much bigger context. The gospel is actually bigger than the cross. So, so let's think it through. Jesus calls it the gospel of the kingdom. The word gospel means good news. That means something that's announced. You know, when, when you get the news, you wouldn't get it on your iPad. You wouldn't get it in a newspaper. You'd get it at the city square where a herald would arise and say, Hear ye, hear ye, the news for the day. And he would announce the news. So news is announced in the first century. And Jesus says this news is to be announced. And here's the news. Here's the summary of the news. The kingdom of God has come and is coming. That is to say, there's a regime takeover. There's an exchange of regimes that is happening right here as we speak. Even in the preaching of the word, the regime is taking over. The kingdom has come and is coming. That's the big announcement. Now, if you're thinking carefully, you realize that's really not good news for you on the one hand because the one who's taking over is a perfect judge and he is going to judge all sinners and damn them for their rebellion. That's called bad news. The devil at least was letting us get along on the face of the earth for a while. But now a new kingdom is coming. A holy God is taking over. Sounds like bad news, but this is what makes it good news. Keep, keep preaching, announcer. Okay, okay. The next piece of this kingdom is this. He's granting amnesty to anybody who wants it. Full amnesty. Can you believe it? <laughs> you dirty, rotten scoundrel. Can you believe all of your sins are forgiven by the king? I know it's hard to believe because he's a just king. You can't imagine how a just king could ever do this. He's granting full amnesty. By the way, this is a little side road. It's hard for me to understand why evangelicals are, are not immediately profoundly sympathetic with anybody living in our country who needs amnesty. <laughs> because that's how we got here. <laughs> We're in the church because of amnesty. So you just think immediately we'd resonate with all of these DACA young people, you know, and all of the illegal aliens. They would, we would immediately think those are, must be our people because <laughs> that's what we were. The kingdom has come. We've been granted full amnesty. Furthermore, more good news. Not only are you granted amnesty, but you are going to be adopted into the royal family itself. So you're not just forgiven and pardoned for your treacherous rebellion against this king and just left to live in your slums. He's bringing you in the palace and making you a daughter, a princess, or a prince. In the kingdom. Wow. 
How has he done this? Because his only begotten son has paid the price. And that's not all the good news. You're not just going to be an adopted child. Sometimes we, we don't realize this. If you have an adopted child, you know that child does not have your DNA. You're going to end up with the king's DNA. Peter says, you're going to partake of the divine nature. You say, how's that going to happen? He is going to come inside of you and give you a new birth. And you're going to be born into, reborn into this royal family so that you actually belong by DNA. Now there's good news. It's the news of the kingdom. You see how, how grand in scope it is. It's an announcement of a kingdom and the king's son, who is the king himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, has provided for this amazing amnesty. That's the announcement. And he says, I want you to go take care of people, care about them, everything about them, especially their need to be reconciled, to receive amnesty, so that they too, like you, might be in the royal family forever. It's a huge challenge. That's the ministry. That's the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And every Christian is, is to engage it. And for those of us who are making our living off of tithes and offerings, especially it's incumbent upon us. Where the very bread that we eat comes from tithes and offerings, a response to the gospel itself. Our very physical sustenance comes from the gospel. So we have all the people Shout the loudest and do the most work to see that people are healed and cared for. Now, secondly, that's the first thing, is that this is our ministry. It's the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He shows us what it is. It's healing and it's teaching and preaching. It's word demonstrated and word declared. With the prominence, obviously, on curing the eternal disease of men and women. Now, secondly, notice that he shows us how weighty this is. And let's just take a moment to look at it. He says, do you realize in, in verse 10 that when they do not receive you, you're to let them know that judgment has come upon them? And the reason is that judgment has. Here's the weight of your ministry. When you go in to help someone in the name of Jesus, either by word or deed, and you are rejected, the kingdom of God is to be announced in a way of judgment upon them because they will be judged for that. No one can lay a hand on you without judgment from God. Now, the blood of Christ can wash away those sins too, just as they did with the Apostle Paul. But Paul knew that he had provoked the living Messiah by laying a hand on his people when Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So you are connected to Jesus Christ, and when they reject your work, your kindness, your personhood, your message, they are rejecting Jesus himself, which calls, of course, for great pity from us. I know how difficult it is to talk to teenagers. They dare you to entertain them or to be interesting or to make a friendship with them. 
They, they want to make it as difficult as they can often. And you want to wring their necks. But do you realize that if they're unconverted kids and they're rejecting you, this is not good for them. They're in deep weeds. They are showing you their rebellion against the living God. And what it calls for is great compassion for them. Jesus looked at the crowds. Crowds didn't understand him and eventually crucified him. He looked on the crowds with great compassion because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And that's the condition of lost people. They don't have a shepherd. And sheep without a shepherd die. And Jesus had tremendous compassion upon them. So when you're being rejected, just remember, this is not about you. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes we, as youth workers and pastors, do goofy things, and we earn all the rejection we ever get. So I'm not talking about that when we've messed up. I'm talking about when you come in the name of Christ in a loving way, and you're rejected. The Lord Jesus Christ himself has been rejected. And therefore, we, we should even pray harder for that person. They're even in more trouble than they were because they rejected you. The consequence of our ministry is enormous because you see that he says, go all the way down to verse 16. The one who hears you, hears me. You're speaking for the Lord. You're his messenger. And when you speak and you're heard, they're hearing the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he's saying to the 72. This is not just Peter and John, not just the 12. He's talking to the 72. He's talking to all of us. And then look what else he says in verse 16, that one who rejects you rejects me and rejects the Father, the one who sent me. That's the consequence of your ministry. That's the power and the authority of your ministry. I have found in my observation that the most common impediment to the effectiveness of an elder's ministry and a youth worker's ministry, those two both, is this one thing, not understanding the spiritual authority that God has given you through your calling in the church. You thought you were just hired. If you're hired to be a youth worker, that is to be one who demonstrates the gospel and declares the gospel, you now have the authority of God through his providence, through the local church, and you must exercise your authority not with pride and not with, not with vaunting yourself over other people, but with humble awareness that God is at work through you because you're appointed for this work. And one of the greatest impediments that keeps us from being effective is that we're a little shy and awkward and we don't know what authority we have. You have the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. When they hear you, they hear him. When they reject you, they reject him. It took me about three years in pastoral ministry to get comfortable with being a pastor. Maybe it was because my father, to whom I've alluded before, and I love my dad, and he did many, many good things for me, but he did make fun of pastors as I was growing up. It stuck in my head. They're, they're a weak bunch. They don't usually know what they're doing. All of this through the years, I picked up on. So I was a little embarrassed to be a pastor, to be honest. And then I realized, you know what my real problem was? I was ashamed of the gospel. So for the first three years of my pastoral ministry, when I'd get on an airplane, 
The last question I would ever ask the person next to me is, what do you do for a living? Because I knew you'd ask me. And then the conversation would take a different turn. But then I read a story about D.L. Moody, who one day was on his way to church, and he went through a Chicago park early in the morning, and he saw, he saw a man on a bench there who obviously had spent the night there. So Moody just sits down right next to him. And he says, sir, tell me, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior? And the man on the bench said, sir, that's none of your business. And Mr. Moody said, sir, my name is D.L. Moody. He said, oh, excuse me, that is your business. (laughs) (laughs) Is it yours? Is this the way you see yourself? Disciple of Jesus Christ, missioner, evangelist, discipler, pastor of people. You don't have to have the title pastor to be shepherdess or shepherd. Do you see yourself this way? Is this who you are? Is it part of your identity? Well, I realized at that point that I had not embraced wearing the gospel. So now, first question I ask somebody when they sit down next to me in the airplane, hey, what do you do for a living? Because he's going to ask me in just a few minutes. And, I, and here's what I'll say. I'm a Presbyterian pastor. And you know, the great joy of my life is I get to talk to people about their spiritual lives. I'd love to hear about yours. What's your journey like? I don't have to talk about the Mets or the Yankees or Atlanta Braves or anybody. I don't have to build a bridge. It's so easy for people like us. It's our business. Even in the pagan's mind, they see it as our business. So when you get paid, when you, you live off the gospel, you, the culture actually gives you more authority to ask these private questions. Do you know that you have the authority? Even if you weren't on full-time staff, you've got the same authority. And this is our business, house business. I'd walked life's way with an easy tread, had followed where comforts and pleasures led, until one day in a quiet place, I met the master face to face. With station and rank and wealth for my goal, much thought for my body, but none for my soul. I had entered to win in life's mad race when I met the master face to face. I met him and knew him and blushed to see that his eyes full of sorrow were fixed on me and I faltered and fell at his feet that day while my castles melted and vanished away. Melted and vanished. And all I could see was the master's face. And I cried aloud, Oh, make me meek to walk in the steps of thy wounded feet. My thoughts are now for the souls of men. I lost my life, but I found it again. Ever since one day in a quiet place, I met the master face to face. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the high honor, of which there is none higher, of being your ambassadors to the world, your messengers, your healers. We ask that you would raise us up even tonight with a sense of your power and authority to speak to young people and old people alike, poor people and rich people alike, 
about the kingdom, to take every affliction in their lives and to be concerned about it and to seek to help whatever way we can and to lead people to a saving knowledge of our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We commit ourselves to you, O Lord, tonight to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.